This is a Broad Pods production. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Hello and welcome to Broad Radio. I'm Safa Shenamish. Now, ordinarily I would be sitting next to the lovely Joe Stanley, but today is no ordinary day because it's COVID times and Joe is joining us from home because she's in ISO. Hello, Joe. Hi, Sample. It is so lovely to see you in Broad Radio HQ at the wonderful Castaway Studios while I, yes, am in my home. It's quite a surreal thing for me to be not with you, but thank you for holding down the fort. I'm so appreciative. I'm actually a bit devo because I was hoping to sit with you, you know, in the flesh and, and touch you, but I, I can't. But <laughs> thank goodness for technology because the, the show can crack on. So today we're not only, you know, swapping seats, we're swapping roles. And, you know, there's, there's something that I've been sort of talking to you about. I'm telling you how I'm obsessively watching the morning wars on Apple TV. And, you know, for anyone who hasn't watched it, hashtag spoiler alert, Jennifer Aniston (laughs) (laughs) plays this role. She's a TV host. She gets COVID. I've just ruined the whole series. And she's documenting, you know, her illness on air. Of course, you don't have COVID, but you are in ISO. Talk us us through your, you know, your week. Embrace the Jennifer in you. Oh, well, I mean, I don't want to make it about me. I've had to have a chat with myself like am I being really narcissistic right now because it's my husband who has COVID and I did throw a little tantrum on Sunday at the fact that I had to isolate and I'm like why I should be able to work I should be able to go out for my walk and you're you're sick I'm not and I did make it a little about me on Sunday I've got to say uh but you know he's actually fortunately very mildly affected He's stuck in a room in another part of the house. We're lucky that we can sort of keep him from us. I'm terrified. I mean, the chances of me getting it is pretty high. But right now, he's living his best life because basically he's got a TV, he's got an ensuite, and I'm delivering food to him three times a day. So I feel like I'm running a bed and breakfast right now. And um, 
So again, I don't want to make it about me, but I can't <laughs> wait to get out of here. It feels like at the moment we're all living through COVID roulette, right? You know, will I, won't I? And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of devastated that you're not here but um I feel for your husband you know he he's the one who he mm. he's the one who's sick and I guess we have to all go through this process to keep one another safe right we you know COVID to some extent has been knocked off the news cycle so I think we've sort of forgotten that COVID is there with us because other devastating things are happening mm. around the world I mean the the fact that you know, we've, we've got these devastating floods happening in, in, in Queensland and New South Wales. A bunch of people just had to be evacuated again last night from New South Wales. And, 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 and I guess, you know, my heart and all our hearts go out to mm. those, those people who are affected. And if you know anyone in that area, if, if they're affected, because it, it is a, a difficult time. But today, yes, and, and and absolutely, I will say when I told my friend, we you know messaged all of our network that oh my gosh, we're in ISO, Daz has COVID. I did feel like it does feel very minor compared to what people are going through, and certainly, well, my friends told us that that it was oh my god, that's so twenty twenty one. Get over it. So you know, we've been we're doing okay. Nothing like good. Nothing like good friends to um. To tell you how it is, right, <laughs> right, Joe. <laughs> Just to put yeah. you in your place. Um, so today is International Women's Day, and you know it's such an exciting show that we've got lined up, Joe. I'm I'm really excited. We've got a powerhouse of women joining us. We have got we have got Kemi Nekvapil, the author of Power: A Woman's Guide to Living and Leading Without Apology. So she's going to be joining us. We'll also hear from Di Westaway, OAM, the founder of Wild Women. On top and Coast Trek. Now that's Australia's premier hiking challenge for women. Plus, plus, I am so excited. One of Australia's most influential and inspirational gender equality advocates, Natasha Stott Despoia. Oh my gosh, I am such a fangirl. So this is super exciting for me. It's like, you know, one of those things where you tick off your list of who would you want to meet? So she's going to be joining us on the show as well. All that coming up later on in the show. Broad Radio is proudly supported by Chemist Warehouse. Chemist Warehouse, great savings every day. This is Broad Radio. Hello, I'm Sad Pashena Mish and Jo Stanley is joining us from her home today. I'm going to pretend that you're having a work from home day today, Jo. Does that sound good? Mm. Yeah, I'm well and I am. I'm working solidly at home. And as you said before, technology is a wonderful thing that we can keep sort of pushing on. Um, International Women's Day is a very special day on the calendar, sample. Um, I always feel a little bit conflicted around it, however, and I think about the women who uh, perhaps feel a little excluded from the celebrations. It, it always feels to me like it's the domain of, um, you know, women of a certain kind of network. You know, it's breakfasts, it's uh, women in leadership, it's professional women, and I often think about the women who perhaps are excluded maybe they're sort of from a different economic uh, disadvantage and so they're not invited to the breakfast or they can't afford the ticket or they can't afford the childcare to get there or, you know, they're working shift work. 
I kind of think where do they fit in the conversation for International Women's Day? Absolutely. Um, uh, I think I've brought it up once before on this show that, you know, we, we don't often talk about class. We ignore the, the class barriers and there's a lot of class barriers that, that women face. And I think when you and I were chatting yesterday, you know, you, you made that, you know, profound comment that not very many people can drop $100 on a champagne breakfast. So it, it is those sorts of women that we need to bring into this conversation as well, because, um, you know, our voices need to be heard across the spectrum of women uh, wherever, you know, we are in society, I think. And that that's that's really important. And um, before um, we go on, Joe, I'd just like to ask our audience, if, you, if you're watching live, um, please do send us a comment, drop us a line, send us your support and encouragement on Facebook or YouTube. After all, it is International Women's Day. It's the one day of the year that we get to remind each other that we are stronger together, that, you know, we're better when we lift each other up. In fact, you know, it often reminds me of that African proverb, you know, it goes along the lines of if if we want to go fast, go alone. If we want to go far, go together. So as women, we are much, much stronger together. Um, this year's theme is Break the Bias, Joe. What, what does it mean for mm. you? What, what, is, what does that bring up for you? Well, there are so many biases that we see around us. And I think that there's a journey that you go on as a feminist and as a woman as you go through your decades where you see more and more biases. And you kind of, it's like, you know, that old saying that, you know, the, the, the whatever, what did you say? The filters come off your eyes. Like you just un, un, suddenly you see differently. Um, and you're aware of the biases that are pretty much everywhere. Two that really enrage me that I think we have a huge amount of work to do on, one being the um, terrible bias in around the incarceration of Indigenous women uh, in Australia. There are some fantastic organisations that work towards assisting um, women and girls who are in prison. Sisters Inside is one that I do follow. Sistersinside.com.au is a really fantastic organisation. But, you know, they, they, they obviously work on the basis that criminalisation is an outcome that comes largely from poverty and violence for women. And that's exacerbated for when it's, in, you know, generational poverty and violence. So um, for uh, Indigenous women, they are incarcerated at a much higher level than other women in Australia. And, and that is down to bias, basically. Um, basically, it's just a racist system that sees I, I, that happening. I mean, we, it makes me think we need to take a good hard look at ourselves because it's, it's really a human rights shame because when you look at the, I mean, you mentioned high levels of um, incarceration, but the entire Indigenous population is only 3% of the whole Australian population. So when you think about it in that context, you know, why are we allowing more Indigenous women when the the overall population of Indigenous people in this country uh, is only 3%? Uh, why are they overrepresented? So, you know, we, mm. yeah, we need to break that poverty cycle. We need to break that that trauma cycle absolutely yeah i mean i like i i have a friend who lives in wa and she she tells me that it is not unusual for you to be at a shopping center and if there's an indigenous woman walking around that shopping center that the security will follow her no one else there's just this assumption that you should expect some kind of criminal activity from that woman largely because of her appearance and that that just makes me sick it's just it has to stop Pure discrimination. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the second one that I really get enraged by because I hear about it every day is medical bias. Um, and that comes down to women just not being heard, not being listened to, poor treatment, inaccurate diagnosis, and very, very much limited research into women's um, health issues and, and disease. So it, it, essentially, if you have a, a disease that is more likely to be um, diagnosed in women, like autoimmune diseases or fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, so many of them, um, it means that you're going to be uh well less research has been invested into that particular disease and you're more likely to be kind of overlooked and ignored and you know what i'm a case study of that i've probably told you this i, I suffer from migraines have done so for a very long time and the research that goes into migraines it's just been dismissed it's been ignored and there's a really good reason for it because three times as many women suffer from migraines than men so they've sort of just dismissed it as a, a as a women's issue it's not really an equal opportunity disorder is what I like to say so I'm, mm, I'm hoping mm. that we can shift that because I want the you know that drilling painful feeling in my head to stop thank you very much yes well you want to be listened to and understood and heard and I think that frequently women are dismissed as hysterical and hypochondriacs Absolutely. So two Which, issues. Which, by the way, I kind of am at times. I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. But Are I we... don't mean to discredit all the other women. <laughs> I love it, Joe. I think, I think all of us have got a touch of the hypochondriacs on certain days, I imagine. Um, so t two other... Um, I guess, bias issues that we can throw into the mix is, is AI. So, you know, artificial intelligence, the way algorithms are, um, you know, programmed, the way data is captured, even the way data is interpreted. So, like, I was working with a client recently producing a podcast series. It's called Research That Matters. I was interviewing a researcher and she told me this fascinating story about the, the launch of Siri. She said when Siri was first launched, if you asked Siri, or actually if you told Siri, um, you're a slut, Siri would respond, oh, I, I, I'd blush if I could. So Siri was like straight out of the 1950s because they had this such a gendered lens on how they had created Siri. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really um, integrated into our artificial intelligence systems. Obviously, they've, they've um, solved the problem of Siri, but we don't know what other problems exist there in, in terms of AI bias. Uh, and this also segues into, I guess, design overall. Uh, there's, you know, that everything that we sort of experience in our lives has got some form of design component to it. And um, uh, the, the the example that comes to mind is remember in 2019 the the two female astronauts were going to do the first ever female spacewalk. And there was a big, like, you know, hoo-ha around it. Everyone was excited. It never happened because the spacesuit that they were going to wear didn't fit them. It was designed with mm. only men in mind. So they missed out on that opportunity. I mean, and that, that's a high-level example, but there's, like, you know, really everyday design examples. So, you know, I'm going to show my phone here. The phone, yeah. the, the smartphone is designed for... The average male hand, my teeny tiny hand can't text message holding my phone because it's designed for the average male hand. 
And then, you know, when it comes to things like life and death, um, anyone who's done a CPR course, I've done heaps of them, you're practising on a male mannequin, right? Um, you don't practise on a female mannequin. And they've crunched the numbers and found out that when a woman's, for instance, having a heart attack, a lot of people don't step in to help because they've never had to manoeuvre around the boobs because they've been practising mm. on the male torso. So our of lives course. are at risk. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing to me, Seville. Again, you, that, and that's what I mean about the fact that as you go through life, bit by bit, the blinkers fall away and you see how much of this is out there and you've just done that to me right then because you're right, I've only ever learnt CPR. On a, on a male torso. So, yeah, that is amazing. Wow. A lot of work to be done. Um, but what an exciting show we have coming up. And I, I'm predicting that we're going to go a little late today because <laughs> we've got a lot to talk about. Absolutely. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. So let's crack on and introduce our first guest, the very impressive Natasha Stockdespoir. Now, she was one of Australia's youngest politicians. She's a gender equality advocate and she's an author. She's done so many things to help women and girls and she's working hard to eliminate discrimination. She's got a busy job, so she couldn't be yes. here with us live today. Um, so we pre-recorded this with her earlier. Happy International Women's Day. Look, happy International Women's Day. Last year I said happy, happy Reckoning Day, um, but this year I'm going with Happy International Women's Day and happy call to action day. So, you know, she's keeping the momentum going, I think. I'm really happy that you, you've you started with this because I always go into International Women's Day with a slightly are you conflicted state of mind. It is a celebration and it's a, an opportunity to take stock and recognise how far we may have come, although it's such small steps that sometimes you go, ugh, what are we celebrating? Well, I'm very busy always around International Women's Day, which seems to be International Women's Day weeks mm -hmm. these days. And I'd be quite happy if we just declared it like many other countries do a national holiday and had a day off and women could sleep in, mm -hmm. maybe not have to work so hard. But of course, the reality is there are good reasons to commemorate the gains that we've made. Um, but of course, I think for many of us, it's a reminder of how far we have yet to go. And I think uh, while we can all be a little conflicted, sometimes people feel, you know, a superficial celebration with breakfasts or cupcakes may not necessarily be the best thing for the women's movement. I'm a big fan of networking and sisterhood. And I love the idea of us getting together uh, to support each other and hopefully um, work out what we've got to do next in order to create better opportunities for uh, women and girls in particular. I also, I'm, I'm glad that you say that because I often go, well, we are in Australia, even though we are still, of course, working so hard on critical things like women's safety and ending gendered violence and, you know, things that are absolutely critical, really relative to the rest of the world. Um, we're in a place where we are able to have breakfasts and lunches and, and, you know, our girls can go to school. And sometimes it feels like really, are, are we having any impact here in what we're doing? Absolutely. And a lot of the work around International Women's Day in Australia is organised by uh, UN Women. And so a lot of the proceeds from events and breakfasts, for example, actually go towards 
uh, life-saving, indeed life-changing work for women and girls in the region and beyond. So sometimes those breakfasts that you attend and you wonder, mm, am I really having an impact in Australia or beyond? You actually are. And that's not to say there's not a lot, we oh, gosh, we've got to do so much work in our own country. As we've seen in the last couple of years, uh, we're certainly not immune from the issue, the pervasive issue of uh, violence against women and children. Uh, we're certainly not immune from long-standing, seemingly intractable issues like, you know, gender pay gaps or lack of women's representation in decision-making institutions, uh, in corporate Australia. And we know, particularly in light of the COVID pandemic, that women's lives and many of the inequalities that we face have actually been exacerbated by the pandemic. So yes, we've got some serious issues to tackle and certainly a breakfast or a day is not going to change that. But anything that focuses uh, the energy and the attention, particularly of policymakers and those who are in power, that's not a bad thing. And Natasha, you mentioned the, the impact of the, the pandemic. And one of the things that we were told was that it's the financial pressures of the pandemic that saw a spike in the cases of domestic violence, specifically with women in Australia. But in the context of the sort of the broader discussion, is it because women are still seen as the cooks, the cleaners, the carers? Are we still focusing about women's roles in, in that context? Is that the problem? Very much so. So all over the world, including in our country, uh, the pandemic uh, exacerbated those traditional rigid uh, gender roles and stereotypes. Uh, we saw uh, women many in many occasions on the front line. So, you know, the caring roles as teachers, as cleaners, uh, health workers, of course, as well as you know, looking after not only children uh, in some cases or elderly parents. Those roles were absolutely exacerbated. And I know that some people will come in and say, but hang on, we actually saw research and evidence that men had to do more caring work during the pandemic. And that's true. But still, women's roles were disproportionate when it came to those unpaid caring roles. And in particular, some of those under-rewarded, often low-skilled or considered low-skilled um, roles in our community. So the pandemic made inequalities around the world worse, uh, particularly for people who were poorer, uh, people with disabilities, people already marginalised, and women and girls generally. And I can, you know, the issue particularly of violence against women and girls around the world, you know, UN Women call this the shadow pandemic um, because frightening extraordinary levels uh, of violence against women, whether that was um, in you know, early enforced marriages increasing um, by about 10 million is the prediction by the end of the decade as a consequence of the pandemic, right through to what we saw even in Australia with um, online violence, uh, which you know, over the Easter holiday alone uh, in the first year of the pandemic, we saw a 600% increase in reporting of online violence. So really across the board, the pandemic has made lives much, much harder um, when it comes to women and girls. And that's something that we've got to tackle globally, but we've also got a lot of work to do here. 
Natasha, you were the founding chair of Our Watch and your work, you know, in, in preventing violence against women is, is extensive. Um, and I, I suppose we're all similar in that we're despairing. It feels as though nothing really changes. What are we doing wrong? What aren't we doing? Things are changing. So please take some heart because even, what, 10 years ago, we didn't always talk about violence against women and children in, a, in the context of gender equality. And that's something that has changed. People have recognised now that there's almost this inextricable link between gender inequality and violence, this kind of violence. We're now recognising if gender inequality is at the core of the problem, hey, gender equality is at the heart of the solution. And by that I mean, you know, tackling rigid gender stereotypes, tackling the underlying causes, you know, the attitudes and behaviours that give rise to this violence in the first place, whether that's limits on women's independence, whether it's, you know, uh, male peer relationships that uh, celebrate disrespect or consider women, you know, inferior, all of these things we're now starting to recognise are linked. And so the good thing is, and you know you've been involved in some of this work, we can look at solutions. And that means looking at respectful relationships education in schools you know it means workplaces where women are equally valued supported respected promoted it means looking at the ways that we advertise it's looking at representation of women and men non-binary however we identify in terms of our parliaments and other institutions of power so we've worked out that there are things that we can do in fact everywhere we live love learn, work and play, we can start to engender respect, equality, and hopefully as a consequence, uh, eliminate violence. But it takes a long time because as we know, uh, things don't change overnight. Policies, legislation, reform, that's not enough. Cultural change is the biggie and that's something we're working towards. So take some heart because we are recognising the problem. We understand the solutions. Now we need the goodwill and we need time to make the change. Natasha, if we focus on the, the education aspect uh, and look at schools specifically, if that's the place where we tackle respectful relationships, we've also got problems there as well. I mean, we just have to think about, you know, that elite school, St um, Kevin's, and, you know, there was an in independent inquiry into that school and it found that the elite school was actually... It, it, it was behaving in a way that was sexist and, and misogynistic. So do we really need to shake our education system to the core and, and sort of break the model and then rebuild it from scratch? That's a really good point. The one thing I say is because this is so multifaceted, it's one thing to address one aspect and education is critical. We know that, you know, the younger, the better you get age appropriate, you know, respectful relationships, education, the more likely you are to understand, you know, how things work and how you can model and present ethical, healthy, you know, equal relationships. But you know what, if those kids are getting different messages at home, that doesn't necessarily make it any easier to ensure that you have behavioural change. You know, for example, at home, I may, you know, preach to my children, much to their, probably their disdain these days, you know, how about gender equality is important and boys and girls are equal or it doesn't matter how you identify, equality is key. If you get a different message on the sporting field from your coach, you know, who once said to my son, you know, aren't you a mummy's boy or don't, you know, kick like a girl, then you've got other, you know, it's, it's this 
interacting layers that are so important. So yes, education is critical. It's the great equaliser. It always has been. But workplace, what we watch on TV, what we hear on the radio, what we see on the sporting field, all of those things, including the kind of relationships that we model as parents or caregivers, all of that makes the difference. And you get to see how complex and how hard it is to get all those things working together. Natasha, I was I was blessed enough to uh, interview Elizabeth Broderick and uh, she was telling me that her approach when she established Male Champions of Change was very much around finding through compassion and understanding of that person's position because yeah. she said you can't change someone's opinion. It, it's just, you know, it's going to end up in conflict. So I wonder what is your approach when you're having a conversation and you feel that there is a point that you need to make, how do you go about it? Well, of course, as a former politician, of course I think I can change opinions, but uh, <laughs> that might be a little um, arrogant and there might be evidence to the contrary, actually, now that I think about it. Um, I think the work that we were doing through Our Watch and Our Watch continues to do wonderful work, the National Foundation to Prevent Violence Against Women and Their Children, really was predicated on the issue of cultural change. And we learned that attitudes and behaviours have to change, but they're different. You might think one thing, but behave a certain way. So what I mean by that is, you know, they're not linear. Um, for example, we've seen a primary prevention approach to smoking, to skin care in Australia. All of those things have shown that, you know, population-wide change is possible, but it's a combination of making something almost socially embarrassing and inappropriate, and then actually changing people's minds about, oh, I can't say that about women. Um, uh, but I also don't want them to think that way either, if that makes sense. So changing attitudes is really hard and it takes a long time. Behaviour is a good first step. So, yeah, I think you can appeal to people. Um, you know, hopefully people will want to do the right thing. There's a lot of criticism, of course, when um, people say something, including our Prime Minister, like, you know, because I'm the father of a daughter or, you know, my, my wife said this. But the reality is sometimes those things do have an impact on people's behavioural change and their attitudes. I would hope that as good citizens and humans, everyone would recognise that equality is in all our interests. I would hope that corporate Australia, just as parliamentarians, would recognise that uh, countries can't function using only half the population's talent and resources. So there's even a business case for gender equality, let alone the prevention of violence against women and children. Um, so I would hope that we can appeal to people's good sense and their hearts and their minds on this issue. But sometimes, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I do despair because I just think, why haven't we solved this already? You know, innately, you know, violence against women is not an inherent biological condition you know it's it's not natural so we can prevent it we can stop it um, and that's the good news violence against women and children is preventable but we've got to have the goodwill the resources and of course sometimes generational change in order to make that happen but do I want it to happen faster you bet you bet Natasha you mentioned that there's even a, a business case for yeah. Uh, tackling DV and and if we like crunch the numbers it's it's costing us over 20 billion dollars a year so putting the the moral argument aside there, there's a real cost involved in not stamping it out 
I mean, we've seen during the pandemic how quickly we can respond to things, how quickly we put in policy and practices to respond to to COVID-19, yet we're dragging our feet when it comes to something as large as domestic violence. So what is it that's actually stopping us putting these policy practices into place? Is it the possibility that perhaps prominent men may be dragged into this conversation, that their reputations may be tarnished? Oh, there are a few things there. First of all, one thing I learned very early, people don't relinquish power and they certainly don't do it easily. We need women in positions of power. We need women recognised and represented and reflected throughout society, especially in powerful positions. And that means men sharing power at best or relinquishing power. So I think that's really challenging for people. The other thing is women's issues, so-called, and this is a human issue, let's be honest, um, you know, men's, you know, perpetration of violence against women and girls is actually a men's problem when you think about it. However, the issues affecting us have traditionally not been given the same degree of importance and respect and resources as other issues in society. And you're quite right to make that sort of analogy. You know, I've seen politicians and, you know, ministers with a stroke of a pen change ideas, policies overnight. I've seen millions of dollars, you know, allocated instantly to issues that are considered emergencies. Well, I've always maintained that the issue of violence against women and children in Australia is a national emergency. So if we had the goodwill, the political will, yes, we could change more and we could change more overnight. We could turbocharge this particular issue. So when you ask why, there are many, many complex reasons, but yes, in a very sort of simplified manner, people are challenged by it. It confronts people's idea of, you know, the traditional roles in society. And certainly when it comes to power, people like keeping power and it's a real challenge for people to share it. I was shocked by that through my life in politics, Um, but at least now I'm realistic enough to know that uh, it's not just about people giving power to women or to any other marginalised or underrepresented or underrepresented group. It's about us claiming it. And I think that's what we've seen in the last couple of years, a new movement, a momentum, particularly led by young women and women from diverse backgrounds, that excites me. I feel that there's a momentum for change uh, and that gives me great hope for the future, to be honest. Uh, I agree entirely. Natasha, I have to say the last year has been extraordinary as we all have been caught up with this incredible movement and, yes, led by such strong, outspoken women who, my God, at that age, I did not have that kind of courage. Are we going to see a response from our leaders? Because that's why we're angry. When you say, when you say a stroke of a pen, I think nationally we all know instinctually that they have that kind of power and they're choosing not to give us that stroke of the pen. Are we going to see change there? Oh, I feel we're going to see change. Um, I think that long gone are the days where certainly this next generation, younger women particularly. But when I say younger women, I actually think it's this wonderful, diverse and different group of young people. Again, however people identify. I think there's a real understanding now that gender stereotypes and rigid gender roles are a little passe. You know, all these things that did us no favours. These young people are focused on equality and 
ethical, healthy relationships and commitment. So at some point, they're just going to start voting people out of positions <laughs> of power. And whether that's in a formal political parliamentary sense or whether that's, you know, what's happening with corporate Australia or any kind of community groups, I think it's going to be a very interesting transition. So yes, have some hope. Um, and that's not to disregard the work of men and women and others who've gone before, because you really do build on the work of many, many people. And I were, I'm always cognizant of the fact that, you know, I was part of a women's movement that had been going on for, for decades and decades and decades before me. And the best thing that you can possibly do is build on so that you can make it easier better for the next generation. So that's the plan. But I, I just love the fact these young people, they're not, mm. they're not taking any shit. It's just oh, it's amazing. really amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the future's in some good hands, I believe. Yeah, I agree. Um, so just finally, Natasha, because I know you're super busy, but one of the reasons why you're busy is because uh, in 2020, you were elected by the General Assembly of the United Nations as a member of the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. Effectively, I'm calling you our chief feminist um, yeah. because, you know, that is that is a critical organisation doing amazing work globally, but a lot of us probably have never heard of it. Can you just explain what that organization is set up to do and what your role is well with a catchy acronym like CEDAW I'm surprised <laughs> you haven't heard of it but um, no seriously it is the preeminent women's committee in the world and you're right its relevance and is not always known um, by many people including some governments but essentially our role is to keep states parties or countries really who are signatories to the convention uh, that underpins CEDAW, we keep them accountable, we provide member states guidance in the ways that they can create better lives for women and girls. And we do that through a series of articles through the convention, which tackles everything from the issue of exploitation of women, the issue of violence, of stereotypes, issues to do with legal access to justice, marriage and all those issues that are associated with the legal rights of women and girls around the world. We are actually, you know, in the box seat when it comes to talking to countries about what they can do, but also keeping countries accountable when they're doing things that are not only questionable or inhumane. So it's a lot of work, um, typically United Nations with multilateralism, you've got a lot of different regions, geographies and people to uh, work with. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been hard. It's interesting when you're doing something at my age and you're realising that it's very new and very hard, but it's important because I actually see how we can change lives for the better. And that makes me excited. Um, but sometimes, yeah, two steps forward, one step back. But that's certainly the women's movement, isn't it? Mm. But I do feel as though you're working at that incredibly high policy level, but you're you're also someone who we can relate to as, you know, walked a path that we're sort of walking as well. And so there's a sense of, you know, very real inspiration that you're bringing to us um, in the work that you do, Natasha. That is very generous and probably just the little flip that I needed to uh, <laughs> keep going because I have to say, and I'm sure you and your listeners are feeling this too. It's a really challenging time in the world right now. Uh, the issue of the rights of people generally in places like the Ukraine, but particularly women and girls in positions of conflict, 
uh, dealing with issues to deal, you know, for example, with Afghanistan, uh, we've got a lot of confronting stories and, and, you know, circumstances with which we're dealing at the moment. So every little bit of positivity helps. So for those of you celebrating International Women's Day, don't feel guilty. Feel excited that we can commemorate some extraordinary changes that have taken place in our lifetimes and previously, but also let's feel re-energised and recommit to actually tackling some of the challenges and, um, you know, some of the obstacles that lie ahead of us. And I guess one last note on that is we do it reflecting our diversity and difference. So it has to be inclusive. It has to be diverse. It has to be intersectional. Otherwise, it's not really true equality. Well, thank you, Natasha Stotterspoor. It's been an absolute joy. We wish you a very you. wonderful International Women's Day. Thank you. Same to you. Happy Sisterhood. Happy International Women's Day. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Broad Radio. Talking inspo we love, info we need, and sharing more of us. Watch and listen live every Tuesday, 9am, Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time at broadradio.com.au or find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn at Broad Radio Oz. Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8 Broad. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere. Every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here. 2am existential crisis? <laughs> We've got you covered. Broad Radio. Here for more. 
Hello, this is Broad Radio. I'm Sadhpur Chanel Mish and Jo Stanley joining us from her home today. Now, your comments are coming in thick and fast. Thank you so much for everyone who's actually joining in the conversation. Cheryl's written to us. Uh, the, the interview with Natasha Stotter-Spoyer obviously resonated. She said, yes, we are having impact for ourselves and girls. We're normalising these conversations for the younger generation to take forward. Yeah, I love that. Um, But I have to say, you know, we were talking earlier about does International Women's Day include all women? Remember, Sarah, we said that right at the top of the show. And um, Tracy has shared that she actually, she works FIFO in mining, tough gig already. She says, I work in a male-dominated industry, two females out of a 40-person crew. I come home to an all-male household. I didn't know it was International Women's Day until I looked at my socials today. I need to make an effort to get out of my bubble. But equally, I think we all need to make an effort to invite you into our bubble, (laughs) don't you think, Tracy? That's what we're here for, Broad Radio, very much, is about kind of sharing. I think that's the power of radio and the media, of sharing something as important as International Women's Day with communities that may not actually have it on their doorstep in their network, generally speaking. Absolutely. And, and and given that we are celebrating International Women's Day, women of all flavours and colours and creed, I just wanted to share a quote from uh, Malala Yousafzai, who summed up the collective power of women. She said, I raise up my voice, not so that I can shout, but so that those without a voice can be heard. We cannot all succeed when half of us are hurled back. And that brings us really nice and neatly into our next guest because our next guest knows all about the collective power of women. Now, Di Westaway is the founder and CEO of Wild Women on Top, she's, uh, which is a social purpose enterprise which was inspired and empowered, which has inspired, I should say, and empowered over 40,000 women to hike together for good. She's also the founder of Coast Trek, which is a um, fitness team trekking challenge across all of Australia with the aim to get more women moving in nature. In 2020, Di was awarded an OAM to services in women's health, fitness and charity. She's also the author of two books, Natural Exhilaration and How to Prepare for World Class Treks. Di, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. Happy International Women's Day, Di. It's so lovely to see you. Thank you. And what an amazing Natasha Stott Despoia, changing culture. That's what we have to do. Yeah, incredible. Thank you it's for having true. me. Well, Di, it's an exciting thing for me because I have a little announcement to make about Coast Trek in just a moment. But we wanted to start by asking you. What led you to discover hiking? Because you were in your 40s and you're kind of looking around and going, is this it? Which so many women (laughs) have experienced. And it led you down the path to discover hiking and eventually establishing Wild Women on Top. Yes, thank you for asking that question. I was in a very bad patch. Um, Many women or some some women will remember (laughs) um, or will think, project to what it might feel like to turn 40. For me, it was a very bad time, not just the fact that I was going to be 40, but also um, I was in a very bad marriage. I was married to an alcoholic, struggling to bring up my children. I was working full time as a radio producer on that kind of working mum treadmill. 
And I just was in a like overwhelmed, I guess, and like what it, what else is there? Is this is this my life now? Um, so I guess I was rung rung out. Um, and a friend out of the blue invited me to go and climb the highest mountain in the southern hemisphere. Uh, not exactly the sort of invitation you get every day, uh, but I impulsively said yes. Um, I went off with a group of uh, mostly men. I, I dragged my best friend with me because uh, I knew I needed some moral support. Uh, and we had this extraordinary, um, at times terrifying adventure uh, in South America. We failed to reach the summit, but I, I guess it was a classic life-changing adventure. Life would never be the same for me after that. I realised that A, there is a world of adventure out there for women, B, that um, life is not over at 40 for mums with young children, uh, and C, that when women work together, they can achieve extraordinary things. And my friend Annie and I on that adventure, we actually ended up coming out on top. <laughs> like we were helping rescue the men. Like it was, it was really extraordinary. So uh, I came back after that and started a little hobby with a, a little group of, put an ad in my local school newsletter um, and started a little group of women. We put the kids to bed and then at night time, we'd go out with our big packs and our head torches. For me, I had a tiny baby, so I had to leave my little baby with my 12-year-old son. Um, we went out walking for three hours in the dark, in the bush around the northern beaches of Sydney. And um, we learned that working together in the wilderness is a great way to, um, to empower yourself, to strengthen yourself, to improve your confidence. Uh, and this obviously breaking the bias for International Women's Day really resonates with Wild Women on Top. It's a foundation and cornerstone of our brand because we know that women um, culturally don't take on outdoor adventures um, from the time we're little girls where we're dressed in pretty dresses and told not to climb trees and not to wrestle and to behave like ladies. Um, not, obviously not for everyone, but um, we generally don't encourage our little girls and our women to do adventurous things where they test their bodies um, and that's a real shame because in testing your body in the outdoors, in nature, against others, um, it builds strength and confidence that will then set you up um, throughout your life. So that is sort of the foundation of Wild Women on Top. Uh, Di, I, I'm an absolute keen hiker and I reckon I, I took up hiking in my in my 40s as well. So I've hiked across Australia. I've hiked uh, in New Zealand in the Queen Charlotte Sounds. I've, I've even hiked the, the Lycian Trail in, in Turkey, which is really rough and, and, and difficult terrain. Um, it's There's something about hiking that actually challenges you and, and makes you discover something about yourself. And what I discovered was every time I thought the tank was empty, I thought, well, actually there is more in you than you realise. What did you discover about yourself in that first time that you sort of dipped your toe into hiking? Oh, look, I hope that that is exactly why we do what we do, Serpil. Thank you. It is you. You learn how strong you are, and how you also learn um, how fragile you can be. And uh, by testing yourself in nature, you build strength and you build resilience. And 
Um, I found it particularly beneficial to do it with women. And I have had been on mixed in the early days. I went on mixed hikes and did climbs with men and women. Um, but I learned really early on that um, I was much more strengthened in the nurturing company of women um, where we lifted each other up. Whereas in the company of males in that environment, um, we tended to defer to them. I used to defer to my husband in the bush and I knew so much more about it than he did. There's something instinctive in, in us as women where we, where, where we do kind of think that the stronger male will come to the rescue. So I think it's a space where women do need to, will flourish more when we hike with other women. But you're right, even if you're in, in any context when you're hiking, you as you step outside your comfort zone, you realise that you are far stronger than you ever imagined. You can cope with far more than you believed you possibly could. And those lessons can then be taken into all aspects of your life. So... Um, yes, it's been a great joy for me over the last 20 years to watch women um, build their confidence and grow and, and, and also the mental health benefits of hiking, which led to the creation of our Coast Trek walk. Um, and not everyone can trek to Everest Base Camp or trek the Likian Way or, or go to Machu Picchu, but by hiking the coast with a group of friends, um, you're taking on a challenge that um, requires training to bring joy, um, otherwise it's really tough. Um, but it is something that um, that strengthens you and toughens you up and uh, allows you to understand how extraordinary your body and mind actually are. So, um, yes, I'm glad you had those experiences, Circle. Well, you bring up Coast Trek there, Di, which leads me to make an announcement together with you, Di, and that is that I'm super excited to be an ambassador for Coast Trek Melbourne this year. I'm going to be heading out with my little team of girlfriends. I'm doing the 30K, Di, because I've never hiked before, so I didn't know what to expect. I didn't want to bite off more than I can chew, but there's a 30, 45 and 60K event for Coast Trek, and I'm really thrilled to be on board with Coast Trek because it's such a gorgeous event and it's something special to bring together your selected group of gal pals. That is absolutely right. And we've got, and thank you so much, by the way, Joe, for taking the Coast Trek Challenge. 30K, if you've never hiked before, is definitely a challenge and you will definitely um, experience that, oh, I don't know if I can keep going and, and um, you'll have to dig deep to do 30. Um, our patron, Jennifer Byrne, um, and also our Sydney ambassador, Tracy Spicer, um, would absolutely um, reiterate everything that you said about walking with the girls. There they are there. Um, there is nothing that brings more joy um, than walking with the girls. You'll be amazed at the conversations that you have. And when we started Coast Trek, um, we, we really wanted to reach out to women. So we had a rule that 50% of your team must be women. Um, we let go of that rule a couple of years in because we realised we didn't need it because women love what we do and we've realised that the reason women love it so much is because it's quality time with your girl gang. You get to spend six to eight to even 18 hours for those that do the 60K with your girlfriends walking and talking and um, there's, not, there's, not, there's no subject that's taboo in that, in that context. <laughs> So it really is therapy as well as um, as well as all those other wonderful things. Di, when Joe first told me that we were going to be doing this interview with you, I thought, oh, wow, the stars have aligned because I was already looking at signing up for Coast Trek. But 
what I've what I found was that um, there's a level of hesitancy with some of my friends around around the distance. So, have you found perhaps a a tip or a trick to get women out of their comfort zone? I guess what I'm asking you is, how do I convince my girl pals to 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 come along with me? That is a great question, Serpil. And how you do is you tell them that we provide them with a training program that takes them every step of the way. And our coast trekkers often talk about the training program being even more fun than the trek because <laughs> the trek's like, whew, it's tough when you get out there on that day if you want to finish. And most of our coast trekkers are really motivated to cross that finishing line. But if you're having difficulty convincing your friends to join you, let them know that you're in it together, you train together. Most of our coast trekkers set aside Sunday mornings. Most of our coast trekkers are mums and um, they either let the, let the kids run riot on their own. They duck out early in the morning before the kids wake up or they get their dads or their partner or, or somebody that they know to look after the kids and they go for a beautiful, challenging Sunday morning hike together. And every couple of weeks they do a longer hike until gradually you build up your confidence in that distance. So tell your girlfriends that it's not just what happens on the day that matters. In fact, we're even more passionate about what happens every day in the lead up to the event. Um, and we're very, very encouraging and very um, motivating with, with regard to getting you out there to do those weekly walks with your girlfriends. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. I have been very well supported ever since we registered our team. We're excited to get our kit together with our little backpack and we're out training. It's so great. Um, I have a question for you, Di, actually, that's coming from our social media, from Debbie, who says she loves the idea of hiking, but my vision impairment has always stopped me. It's not a fun time when your depth perception is terrible. Going to follow now for inspiration. And I wonder, are there teams of people who partake who... Uh, might be with disability or might have a differently abled. Um, is there that sort of support for people who might want to partake? We have had teams of not just sight impaired but blind trekkers. Can you believe? Back in the days when Coast Trek first started, we did a 100-kilometre event. You could choose 100 or 50. Uh, and one year we had a team of all blind trekkers um, in that instance, they had guides walking with them, obviously sighted guides, um, supporting them and assisting them. And we will absolutely do everything possible we can um, to support those people with special um, or differently uh, different needs. So yes, please sign up. Um, there is a group called the Achilles Club that provides guides for those that um, are sight impaired. So yes, Absolutely. Go for it. We would love to work with you to see how we can make it possible for you to walk the Coast Trek route. Di, just a final question for you. I noticed on your Instagram that your poor knees are suffering. Your, your doctor said to you, you're, you're too old uh, to hike but too young for surgery. That must be the worst. <laughs> What's yes, your plan look, of attack? Yeah, look, a lot of, I think a lot of women my age, I'm 61 now, and a lot of women my age do have trouble with their knees, particularly if we've used our knees a lot. And I have given my knees an absolute hammering. For the last 20 years, I've climbed many mountains with very big, heavy backpacks. So a critical thing for your knees is to, um, yes, look after them and probably not spend 20 years um, carrying 20 kilo backpacks. So I've now had to pivot. I've taken up mountain biking and I've taken up rock climbing. 
Um, rock climbing is something that I ha have loved for many years, but I've taken it up with a vengeance now. Um, and I've just discovered during the last lockdown mountain biking. So mountain biking and climbing don't hurt my knees. Mountain biking will allow me to go out and explore the wilderness, not quite the same as hiking. Uh, but I'm hoping that by giving my knees a rest for a couple of years from that big, heavy pack, I'm hoping that they will recover. And so stay tuned. Watch this space. I'm not ready to give up yet. Fingers crossed for you. Thank you so much for chatting to us, Di. It, it's been lovely to, to get to know you and know more about Coast Trek. And Joe, you are the happy ambassador. I am. I'm really excited to be on board and I encourage everybody to sign up. We are raising money for Beyond Blue. That's a really important part of this challenge because we're collectively supporting women and men uh, who are facing mental health issues. So, um, And we all know that over the last couple of years during the pandemic, who hasn't? Effectively, Beyond Blue hasn't been an incredible lifeline for so many people. So um, I encourage you to get your little team together and... Register coasttrek.com.au. And you can join the 30, 45 or 60K. Um, more broad radio coming up with the amazing Kemi Nekvapel. We are running over time. Oh, yes. Joe's. I was going to say, I think this might be our longest show ever. There's every chance we're going to go to about uh, 10.30. But our plan was always to expand our one-hour show to two. So perhaps today is the first day. <laughs> Today's the case study in that. Now, um, Kemi <laughs> is not going to be joining us live. Um, we, as uh, Joe mentioned, we did go to a book launch last night but she was kind enough to uh, come in and uh, have a chat with us uh, during this month and we talked to her about her book power that's next sample if international women's day was a day like christmas where we gave presents actually i think we should wouldn't that be nice that would be lovely. <laughs> Celebration of women and how far we've come and all of that sort of thing. But if it was a day in which we gave presents, I would suggest this book is the best present to give someone that you love in your life to celebrate International Women's Day. It's by Kemi Nekvapil, who is truly an inspirational coach and uh, leader, I'm going to say. But this book, Power, actually, uh, in a, it, I found it inspiring and challenging. One of the best books I've read recently. Absolutely loved it. I smashed through 110 pages in one day and I don't generally do that. I generally put a book down and then come back to it. But I just was like, I need to stay up to read more. It, yeah. was, it really resonated with me. Yeah, it's challenging and inspiring in all the good ways. And um, I'm very thrilled that Kemi herself joins us now. Hi there, Kemi. Hi, pleased to be with you both. Hi, Joe. Hi, Seppel. Kerry, you are su such an accomplished coach. You have trained with Dr. Brené Brown. You studied yoga in India. Your experience is extraordinary and you, you work with very accomplished women. But I get the sense that you meet women who struggle every day with a sense of self and with lack of confidence, despite how accomplished they are. So my question is, is this just inherent to being female? Oh, a big question. Um, there are definitely aspects of being female that are woven through each of us, regardless of our external accolades or, you know, society's accomplishments and the things that kind of we can tick the box or society ticks the box for us. 
I'm very blessed to work with incredibly successful women in many areas. And when I say success, I don't just mean within their work. I mean, you know, they have families that are working or their sense of self. But within that, as women, we have to operate within a system every single day that in some ways tells us that we are not small enough, that we are too loud, that we are too aggressive. And then add to that as well the intersectionality of colour for me or for women that have disabilities or people that are neurodivergent. We constantly hear the message that we're not quite good enough yet. And I think, yes, it doesn't matter where we are um, on the spectrum. It affects us every day. Kimmy, you mentioned the, the system. And in, in the book, you make a point that the we often lament that the system is broken. But you say that the system actually was never broken. The system was never right in the first instance and that we need to rebuild the system. Yeah. But when you have people sitting in traditional power positions who don't want to let go, who who how do you get buy-in from them? What's your experience been with that? It's um it's an interesting thing actually because sometimes I think we focus too much on the people that have traditional power and we forget this form of internal power that we have as individuals but then also as we see so often now when women come together as a united force we can demolish systems and structures that no longer serve us and if we can't demolish them we suddenly start to just slowly slowly you know, just tap away until those systems have to take a good look at themselves. So your book, Power, is all about us finding, exploring, understanding, owning, stepping into our power, regardless mm. of whatever systems we may be working and living within. Mm. Um, and I know this is a massive question because there's an entire book that I can tell you spent a very long time working on lovingly to tell us how. But is it possible for you, for you very briefly to tell us if we want to step into our power, what are some of the processes we can go through? Well, the actual word power itself in the book, I've broken it down into five power principles. So P is for presence, O is for ownership, W is for wisdom, E is for equality, and R is for responsibility. I think that as women, when we tap into any one of those principles, if we can be responsible for our lives and how we feel and the boundaries that we put in place, if we can honor our equality around other people, regardless of who those other people are, if we can be present to our circumstances, what's working, what's not working, even when we fall out of our power, and I talk about that all the way through the book, this isn't about you will find your power one day and you will have power forever. Ever. that is not realistic and I think it sets women up or for us to feel that one day we will feel all powerful the idea is that we will find ourselves in our situation where we feel powerless and here are some tools that where we can step into and rebuild our power each time you just mentioned intersectionality just then and I want to touch on something because we we don't all start from the the same baseline so we, you know our race our ethnicity our religion our ability our gender identity our class these all make a difference in how powerful or powerless we've we've felt at certain times and in, in the context of the pandemic, something was thrown up um, that we often ignore in this country. We don't talk a lot about class in this country. We, we pretend that it doesn't exist. And in the context of uh, essential workers, that was thrust in our face. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I guess the question I want to ask is, if we're not all starting from the same baseline, how do we ensure that women are seen, heard and recognised with all of our differences? 
Mm, that's where a, a community of women, you know, the reality is, is that some of us don't start from the same position. And so for those of us that have a level of privilege, whatever that is, I know that I have a lot of privilege and yet I navigate the world as a black woman. So I don't have race privilege and I don't have gender privilege, but there are other privileges that I have. And with those privileges, I create spaces for and support women that don't have the privileges that I have. And I think that's what we can do. And I think that's the joy of, you know, International Women's Day is that we come together to support each other regardless of where we're starting or maybe because of where we're starting, because it is, about, you know, we're not a uniform, all women are women. We are very different. We have different experiences. We have different desires. But I think ultimately we want to be able to stand within ourselves and to be able to connect with each other in an authentic way that in itself is powerful. And Kemi, I think one of the other things that the pandemic really shone a light on was the burden on women, the mental burden, the mental load, the mm -hmm. workload, both within and outside of the home. Mm. And I, so I sort of think, okay, yes, we can step into our power and you talk about power of agency, but if you can't walk away from your life or if you can't actually set a boundary that day, how are women to respond when you feel like actually I'm drowning? How can I feel any sense of power in this state right now? Personally, I think there's a power in owning I am drowning. And actually what a lot of women do is that we fall into this idea that we have to be good, that we have to look as if we have it together all the time, that we're the good wife, the good daughter, the good sister, the good friend, the good everything. So it's powerful to even say, I am drowning and I would say the next power move is then to share that with someone and then the next is to ask for the support that you need that is power I love the idea of it <laughs> <laughs> and I love the idea of the permission to say I'm drowning I don't think we do that for each other or for ourselves ever no, and it's interesting because it comes back to this idea of community, and I talk in the book about this, that we have to be really mindful about the people that we have around us. I know in my earlier days, I would very much, you know, have this kind of veneer of being very strong, and I was kind of invulnerable, and, you know, you know, just kind of like, I can do it all, and, you know, if you want a job done properly, do it yourself, because I was kind of raised that way. And then I realized over time that actually it made me feel incredibly isolated and incredibly lonely. And when I started to practice saying to people, I'm not going well, like I'm struggling, I need help, that that actually created deeper and more powerful connections with the women that I surrounded myself with. And I can honestly say that now within my friendship groups and even as a female entrepreneur with other female entrepreneurs, that we can call each other in tears saying, mm -hmm. I cannot believe this happened. But we can also call each other with great success and celebration about something that has worked within our life or within our work. So I think even in some ways we're breaking the status quo as women to say, I don't have it all together all the time. I need help and I need support. You know, and I do want to add to that, Joe, just sorry, what you said around within the home, that can be really hard and it's true because one thing I also know is that sometimes as women, we will request you know, support, we will request help and it doesn't come. And then we, we can then withdraw inwards and go, oh, well, that's it. And our resentment builds up and our anger but sometimes the answer we've got, the power move is actually doing something about the answer that we keep getting. And, and women often give, they, they, they're not takers. So it's really 
we're conditioned to, to, you know, you mentioned this in your book, Kimmy, we're conditioned mm. to serve others. Yes. So that, that idea of asking for help comes, it doesn't come naturally, but helping comes naturally. Yeah, and interestingly, yes. I learned a few years ago, I had to reach out to my network <clears throat> with a continual requests for childcare, and mm. I hated it, right? It was really mm. hard for me to do that, but I realised I wanted to be that for my friends, and they weren't asking me, and I wasn't asking yeah. them. And yeah. by just yeah. simply making myself vulnerable, that opened yeah. the door for them to do that to me. And I was like, oh, of course, we have to model it in each other. 100%. We can't, we, we really struggle to accept the help, but we all want to give the help. And then yeah. what we create actually is mismatched relationships. You've got one person that feels indebted and burdened and one person that's not receiving anything. So over time, those relationships aren't necessarily sustainable and can't be powerful because of the structure in which they're set up. But it is, you know, it is a practice. Women standing in our power is a practice. Asking for help and support is powerful and it's a practice. Kimmy, we mentioned the pandemic a couple of times. One other thing the pandemic thrust upon us is it showed us the cracked race relations that we have in this country. And I want to talk about power and race because you were brought up in um, five different foster homes, uh, in white foster homes in England. Um, You say in the book that you were scared to to share your lived experience and, and to talk about the themes of race and power. Can you tell us about how your upbringing shaped your relationship to power? Oh, I can tell you, I there was none. <laughs> you know, I definitely, and you know, this is what they say, isn't it, authors, that we write the books that we need for ourselves. So I was one of the tens of thousands of Nigerian children born to middle-class parents in the 1960s and 70s that were fostered in England. So I was one of many, and I can, you know, hand on heart say that actually my outcome has been really good. It didn't turn out that way for everyone. It was very clear to me that I had no power. It was very clear to me that I did not get to ask for help or support, that I was to be quiet, that I was to be grateful, which I then learned in this kind of, you know, subtle racism. I I, I was told you're black, but you're a good one. So then I focus on being good. That I spent a lot of energy. And I know that women, regardless of race, spend a lot of time in wanting to be good. But for me as a good black girl, that was a lot of emotional labor. And I just knew that I was powerless. I just knew I had to be thankful and grateful for any situation that I found myself in and cross my fingers and hope for the best. And so what I've realized now as a 47-year-old woman who has lived these power principles through my life, that it is possible to build power. And yet, because of race, because of where I choose to live, I can still walk down the street and have a racist slant thrown at me. I don't pretend that doesn't happen to me. It does. But I also have a sense of internal power now that allows me either to share that with someone that I know can hold me if it makes me emotional. Sometimes it just completely destabilizes me. Sometimes it just rubs off my back. It doesn't matter at all. Um, But I have people around me that I can communicate my lived experience and it won't be gaslighted. It won't be denied and people won't try and put a you know, positive spin on it. And I really love in the book, Kemi, that you address women of colour who might be reading the book and Mm -hmm. white women who might be reading the Mm -hmm. book, who obviously Mm -hmm. I am, and you Mm -hmm. challenge us to really investigate and understand and Mm -hmm. to take the time to hear more of those stories. And I, I, I loved that reminder. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Because I think, you know, I can only walk in my shoes, but, you know, I was 
raised by white families. So the first kind of my first kind of parental attachment was to my white mother. And, you know, I have been loved so much by white people. So in some ways, because of my upbringing, I can stand in both sides. I can kind of have the sort of black experience, well, you know, my personal experience, and, and sort of step a little bit into some of the white experience. And I hope that in the book, because of that, I'm able to communicate to both sides. And I also share, you know, in the book, the power of identity, and where that can get really confused and muddled as well along the way. So we do have different identities, we do have different lived experiences, and when women can acknowledge that in each other, that in itself is another form of power. Kimmy, I love how throughout the book you're, you're peppering all of your personal experiences and there was this mo one moment where I felt like you took me back to my own childhood. It was the playground where we meet oh. your bully, Darren Page, and his racist insults. Mm. But your mm. experience went further than mine because it was a pivotal moment for you. It was a moment where you discovered... Um, your first lesson in power. It was mm. a lesson in control and command. Can you perhaps share that in a nutshell for us? Yeah, I'll try and share it without spoiler. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was one of those moments for me when I realized I want this. It wasn't that I wanted to make someone feel the way that he made me feel, but I wanted to feel a little less powerless for once. And so someone moves into the area where I live and basically, you know, I just decided, right, you know, I'm going to make you feel, or maybe not so much, actually, I wasn't focused on what I would make her feel, I was focusing on what it made me feel. So then I took an action that, you know, is not great. I wish that if I knew her, met her, I would, you know, definitely ask for forgiveness and apologies and all those things. But what I did learn was that the form of dominating and control and shaming, that form of power was not the form of power that I wanted. I'd had it done to me, I had now experimented with it, and I just knew there's gotta be another, there's gotta be another way to feel less powerless. It's so interesting when you actually start recalling your youth and those pivotal moments that have shaped mm. you. And mm. I was so, for me, the most transformative part of the book was really addressing the internalized patriarchy that I carry with mm. me, which mm. a lot of it is around body image and how I see myself physically. And that's related to my food habits and how I exercise and all of that. So that's one side, but also mm. understanding too, that I was raised by a single mum who basically taught us if there was a man in our world, everything would be better. And so I feel like I've spent a lot of time waiting for the right person to come along and rescue me. And, you know, even now in building broad radio, I'm like, where's the hero that will invest in broad radio? And like, it's all of that. That is such a part mm. of my makeup. How can we, how can we shed that from us? Oh, I think one way is to laugh about it. You know, as I share <laughs> in the book, I just sent out I just sent out a very quick text messages to friends and colleagues and just said, what does your internalized patriarchy say? And I literally just pressed send and the list came in and it was very moving and it just made me realize, my goodness, as women, there is so much we have to navigate through sometimes to even just get out of bed in the morning. But then when I called a couple of those people, you know, there were a few tears and anger of like, I cannot believe I believe this, like my value is dictated by a man. Um, if I speak, it must be to make sure that his opinion is higher than mine. Um, I must be thin. Um, a man must choose me. Uh, men will get promoted because I'm too emotional. But then when you, so you, you can see, and there's the emotion in that, but also I remember talking with one friend and we actually were then crying from tears of like, this is ridiculous, you know? 
It is ridiculous. I think one way, again, is for we as women is that we share it. This is what it looks like. This is my internalized patriarchy. And we do it to each other. That's the thing. When women look at other women's bodies and say it should or shouldn't be like that, that's a form of internalized patriarchy. Her body's got nothing to do with me. Um, I should just be focusing on my body. Is it healthy? Am I nourishing it in the way that works best for me? But even this conversation where women are commenting on other women's bodies, I believe is a form of patriarchy. But then if you talk to men, they're just like, we're just happy if you're happy to be with us. You know, like, yeah. we don't really care about your body. So, oh, and it is, and for me too, I look at my husband and he just doesn't have that voice. Yeah. He just does not give yeah. a shit about the way yeah. he looks. Yeah. God bless him. And the, the yeah. freedom that he has in his physicality, yes. I just yeah. go, wow, that's yeah. refreshing to witness. And yeah. I'm going to try yeah. and get me some of that. Um, yeah, we, absolutely. We are honouring International Women's Day today and uh, the hashtag this year is Break the Bias. What does that mean to you, Kemi? There's a few things. I think there's the obvious, which is, you know, break the bias around gender equality and just, you know, biased practices and systems that have that occur. But I also think what we've just spoken to as well in, in terms of this internalised patriarchy, it's kind of break our internal bias. We all have biases. You know, I don't trust someone that says to me, I don't have any biases. I'm like, mm. no, you do. You just haven't been willing to confront them or go deep enough. We have all picked up biases along the way. So for me, break the bias is not just the external biases. It's also the internal biases. Because once we can acknowledge them and admit them, that's the place where we start from to then shift to something else. Oh, I love it. Um, I'm going to finish with a quote from your book, Kemi. I'm always hesitant to quote themselves back to people because um, I've learned over the years sometimes when you read something in the press they didn't say it but this is from your book so yes. I'll yes. read it and I because I love it there is nothing living that will survive if it is not being fed this includes you and the things that are important to you is that beautiful it's lovely oh I love it Kemi thank you so much thanks for your work and for your books because you've got others, I know. Um, but head out today and get power and give it to someone in honour of International Women's Day. I think this is my new practice, to give a gift on International Women's Day in the way you would for Christmas, Kemi. Perfect. I'm going to go. I'm going to do that too, Joe. That's you and I. Yeah. So, Phil, are you up for that? We're going to give a gift? Totally yeah. up for it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Like a Chris Kringle, <laughs> but for International yeah. Women's Day. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Kemi. You take care. Thank you. Lovely to speak with you both. Take care. Happy International Women's Day. Oh my goodness, Joe! How amazing was Kemi? I just feel powerful just listening to her. Oh, she is a true inspiration in in the real sense of the word. Like she makes you just want to get out and really kind of I don't know embrace who you are. I love that power doesn't. It's not an external thing. It's an internal notion. And you know, I did say I did say Cheryl that for International Women's Day, I was going to adopt purchasing gifts for the sisters in my life. And you and I were lucky enough to go to Kemi's book launch the other week. Uh, it was last week. I've always time. I don't know. In, in ISO, I'm confused. It anyway, was last so I week. Did buy, <laughs> I did buy these books as gifts for Ro and Seth, who is our team, our little team there at Broad Radio, but I'm not there to give them. The screen's not showing the book um, as hugely. So here we go. Here's the book. Um, <laughs> there it is. This is what you get, Rowan says, and it's it's a, it's pretty amazing. 
And speaking of pretty amazing, Natasha's Dr. Spoyer. Oh, we are such fangirls, you and I, right? Oh, my God. We were so restrained, honestly. I was very proud of, our, of each of us, I have to say, Steph, because we spoke beforehand how much we were going to fangirl her, but we, we kept it together. But we got, we got to do it off air, didn't we? We, we sort of told mm-hmm. her how much we love her. We, we did have a, a bit of a gush fest. And she told us about how her Doc Martens are ending up in a, in a museum in, um, I think she said Canberra. Canberra, next, yes. next, next to uh, next to Julie Bush, uh, Bishop's red stilettos. I was thinking maybe the neck pearls, but it's the stilettos. What a lovely moment in politics to remember and you I hadn't recalled that she was known for her Doc Martens when she was uh, a politician um but yeah that's yeah it was it was just such a treat to be able to speak with Natasha and have her on broad radio absolutely so that actually is a wrap for today's international women's day show now joe will be with you again here in the chair next tuesday hopefully fingers crossed on broad radio don't forget to catch up on past episodes of broad radio on the go wherever you get your podcasts now i'm going to leave you with a final word from the mighty mighty beyonce who once said I want to give women a space to feel their own strength and tell their stories. That is power. And I hope you find the space for your own power in your day today. Happy International Women's Day. See you soon, Broads. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.